brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Welcome back to Key Battles of the Pacific War in World War II. This is James again, your host, and Scott is here with us. How are you, Scott? Doing all right. We have gone through the jungles of Guadalcanal and made it on the other end. I mean, well, you and I, we haven't done anything, but at least looked at it. So yeah, quite I'm, a battle right there. Glad we weren't actually there. That's the beauty of reading about history. <laughs> you get to kind of feel the thrill and the excitement without being shot at or being getting malaria or... <laughs> being attacked by land crabs or anything like that. So I'm sure you all remember, it, maybe it's been a week, but we just wrapped up a four-part mini-series on the epic Guadalcanal campaign, which lasted several months. The Americans landed attempting to try to chase the Japanese off of an airfield, and they took the airfield, but the Japanese didn't give it up easily, and they kept trying to take it back, and the Japanese refused to leave the island for months. And finally, they just had to because they were worn down. They'd lost thousands of soldiers to death and even more to disease. And people had to abandon the island. But it was a epic campaign in which we had ground combat. We had combat in jungles, combat near rivers, combat on mountains. You name it, it was there. Not to mention there were several brief naval campaigns, naval battles, ship against ship. And then there were air battles as well. Of course, planes are always involved in everything in this war, pretty much. So epic campaign. But in the end, the Americans were able to basically the Japanese were not able to consistently reinforce and resupply their soldiers. And so that's what really turned the tide. The Americans win. The Japanese abandon the island. And now the Americans have gained their own air and naval base in the Solomon Islands, far to the west of any other air bases or naval bases that they already have. But what we're going to do in this episode, as I mentioned last time, is we are going to push pause on the narrative. We've done four of our key battles. We talked about Pearl Harbor, which was our first key battle. The Coral Sea was our second key battle. 
Midway was the third, and the Guadalcanal campaign was the fourth. It's going to be a little while till we get to Key Battle 5, so be patient, <laughs> and, and but it'll be worth the wait, because what we're going to do now, I think this will be a real treat, at least I hope it will be. We're going to go down to the ground level and look at the life of a Japanese soldier, just the average soldier, no generals, no colonels, privates, sergeants, things like that, the, the people that were actually doing most of the fighting. And then we'll look at American soldiers. How did their experience differ from that of the Japanese? Then we're going to go up into the air. We're going to look at the, the career and life of a Japanese pilot as well as an American pilot. And then in our next episode, we'll talk about sailors. Scott, are you ready for this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this uh, really got my brain working overtime when I was thinking about this and uh, episodes I've done in the past or people I've interviewed. And uh, as we talk about Japanese soldiers, there was something I was reminded of um, a while back. This may have been two or three years ago. I interviewed a consultant, uh, not a consultant for a movie, not a consultant for a TV series, but actually a consultant for a video game, uh, Call of Duty World War II. They had a historian who is a historical consultant on Imperial Japan. And he was really good. He's written a number of books on Imperial Japan. Uh, he actually interviewed dozens of World War II Japanese veterans uh, and talked about their war experience. And he even interviewed kamikaze fighters. And you think, wait, how are they alive? Well, a lot of them just ran out of fuel and they landed. So there are many survivors you could talk to, and he did. And one point he made that stuck out to me as James and I were getting this episode set up is that any Japanese soldier, um, there was there were a number of phrases and parts of their ideology burned into their mind. One of the best known ones, if you could wake somebody in a total sleep stupor and begin with the phrase, duty is heavier than a mountain. And 100% of them would then repeat back to you in Japanese, of course, death is lighter than a feather. So the full phrase is duty is heavier than a mountain. Death is lighter than a feather. This is something that, I mean, everyone would know. Um, and what this is, it's the Imperial Rescript to Soldiers and Sailors. This is the official code of ethics for military personnel. And this is a cornerstone of Japanese pre-World War II and World War II national ideology. All military personnel have to memorize this document. Uh, it dates back to 1882. But there's a number of themes that I think will help make sense of the things we're going to discuss here. So some of those things are absolute personal loyalty of each individual member of the military to the emperor, uh, military personnel avoiding involvement in political parties or politics, avoid being influenced by current opinions of the newspapers, which is actually a pretty good idea. But then it also says things like they have to be frugal in their personal habits. And this isn't just normal frugality, but it reflects back to Ed. Uh, austere samurai tradition and be respectful and benevolent to civilians. And there's a number of Confucian themes like proper respect to superiors. And this Confucian theme gets into duty is heavier than a mountain. Death is lighter than a feather. So as you explain this, when we think of Japan at this time and people doing bonsai attacks or committing suicide to have an honorable death, this is the ideology that's being pumped into the air and water for them, where Death really doesn't matter. What ma matters is honorably fulfilling your duty. I mean, death is nothing compared to that. So if that helps make sense of anything we discuss here, well, there you go. Yeah, that definitely lays the foundation and, and helps to understand 
the behavior of Japanese soldiers in so many of these battles, as we've already seen and will continue to see. So let's start by talking about the background of Japanese soldiers. Imperial Japanese soldiers came from a variety of backgrounds, including farmers, teachers, factory workers, office workers, and many other professions. Most enlisted men came from the lower classes of Japanese society, while officers tended to be from higher classes. That's kind of like the British Army, for example, not too surprising. Since 1873, every able-bodied Japanese male had to serve three years in the military. So he had national service, beginning at age 20. During the war, every male 20 and older was made subject to conscription, and enlisted men were very poorly paid. They made less than 20 yen per month. That's $5, $5 per month. Training was very difficult and harsh. It was designed to harden mind, spirit, and body. Officers and NCOs were allowed to beat those of a lower rank, and this often happened. During the war, training could last as little as three months. And the emphasis on the training was bayonet fighting. This came from the old samurai warrior ethic, Bushido, or I've heard it pronounced Bushido sometimes. Bayonets were seen as modern-day equivalents to samurai swords. So it was, the bayonet was stressed much more in the Japanese army than it was in the American army. Japanese soldiers were taught to fight to the death, making self-sacrificial attacks or bonsai charges if necessary. And I, I should say in passing that a bonsai charge, that's the name that the Americans gave to it. The Japanese didn't call them that, obviously. Uh, but the reason the Americans called them that is because as the Japanese attacked, they would shout, Tenohenka bonsai, which means long live the emperor. Surrender was not an option. And we'll, we'll see this again and again. Surrender, it was seen as disgraceful. Better to die for the emperor and hopefully take out one or two Americans with you than to surrender. Very few Japanese soldiers are going to surrender. Almost none until the very end of the war. And then that starts to change. What kind of weapons did the average Japanese soldier use? The main weapons include the Type 38 and Type 99 Arasaka rifles. Type 11, Type 96, and Type 99 light machine guns, Nambu heavy machine guns, of course, bayonets, as, as we mentioned, and grenades. The uniforms were made of cotton and were khaki yellow, and they wore either a cloth field cap or a steel helmet with netting, and sometimes the netting would have camouflage on it to make them very hard to see. Officers generally had Nambu Type 14 pistols, which was an underpowered copy of the German Luger, and the Nambu Type 94, which is one of the worst firearms ever put into production. That's almost a unanimous opinion of World War II weapons experts. And officers often carried samurai swords as well, especially the higher-ups, you know, the generals. Japanese soldiers were very good at surprise attacks. We touched on this a little bit in our Guadalcanal miniseries, and they were especially good at night. The Japanese ruled the night for a long time. And really, I would say the army did. I don't know if they ruled it throughout the entire war, but they certainly made themselves a, a terrifying presence right up until the end. And they were also very good at camouflage. But by 1943, shortages of ammunition, food, and medicine caused many Japanese deaths. And all in all, between 1937 and 1945, about 6.3 million men served in the Japanese army. Approximately 1.3 million were either killed or missing in action. And again, as I said, very few surrendered. That's actually lower than I thought it'd be. 
Interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess it does seem a little. That's. Mm, I mean, it's that's a lot. About, Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, it's percentage-wise way higher than America, but compared to what the Red Army or, and they were the quote-unquote winners or Germany. So, um, I guess yeah. we'll get into more stats at the end of the war. But I guess I'm just sharing my listeners. There's always. Um, Sometimes I go back and research things. Sometimes I have hunches and mm-hmm. I love it when I have a hunch and I understand why my hunch is wrong because that's where learning comes from listeners. Right. Yeah. That's, this is about 20% or is it more than 20? It's more than 20. It's less than 20%. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just can't do math tonight, but uh, <laughs> listener, you do the math. 1.3 yeah. divided by 6.3. Um, it's about, it's about a fifth. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's that's a higher percentage than the Americans. But again, it's not surprising when you consider that they refused to surrender. Uh, this is not technically the army, but these are land troops as well. I thought I'd mention these. Japan also had the special naval landing forces, and these were part of the navy. They were not exactly a marine force. They were sailors who had basic infantry training and were employed in landings. Still, they're roughly equivalent to U.S. Marines. This is a much smaller unit, though, than the Marines. And one of the features of the war is the intense, intense inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Navy in Japan. I mean, every, every country has that. Every nation has rivalries between the Army and the Navy. You certainly had it in the U.S., as we're going to see, and that's going to be a factor throughout the war. But it was like on steroids for the Japanese. Japanese Army and the Japanese Navy detested each other. By the middle of the war, the Army and the Navy were waging totally different conflicts with the Army even having its own transport supply and escort ships and the Navy having substantial infantry. So there you go. It's not exactly what you would call a team effort. So that's what I had to say about Japanese uh, soldiers. Very, very fierce fighters. Very, you, you did not want to face these guys. They. They don't give up. They fight to the death. And their object is to simply to kill as many Americans or other other allies. You know, sometimes it's British, sometimes Dutch, sometimes Chinese. But they are a fearsome opponent. Scott, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, we'll look at this a lot more as we get into it of what it looks like. And um, especially near the end of the series when America is putting together the calculus of um, spoiler alert listeners, sorry, but um, America starts having victory and they um, in world war two and come close to mainland Japan. Yeah, um, I'm sure nobody, no, none of our listeners knew that we probably just, <laughs> sorry everyone, but the, the entire calculus of how to wind down the war and trigger an unconditional surrender is completely different with Japan and Germany. And there's, As the war goes on and on and on, they find that people who hold this ideology, it's not just soldiers. There are many civilians as well. And the the thought of occupying mainland Japan, it it becomes horrifying. And we'll talk into the details of military plans of occupying Japan and what it would take in light of how soldiers and civilians will easily throw away their lives. Um, And it didn't happen, thankfully, but... um, you'll you're just going to see this keep game played out and played out. It seems like the more desperate the situation becomes, it just makes a Japanese soldiers resolve that much harder. And among American soldiers, they may have detested Japanese soldiers, but there was also fierce respect. Oh, yeah. All right. Speaking of those American soldiers, let's talk about the experience of American soldiers. 
Some of this information is uh, repeat from our, ser- our episode that we did on America Goes to War, but I think it bears repeating. Repetition is the mother of learning, right, Scott? Repetition is a mother of learning. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So if you've already memorized all this information, listener, I apologize, but here we go. In 1939, the U.S. Army had only 180,000 personnel. It was the 19th largest army in the world, even smaller than Portugal's army, that mighty power of Portugal. Well, actually, it was back a long time ago, but it's been a while. But that's going to change really quickly. In 1940, President Roosevelt introduced the Selective Service Draft, and this is the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. All men between 21 and 35 had to register, and by 1941, you know, only only a few years after, and only two years after the American, the army had 180,000 personnel. Now it has 1.5 million men. So that's almost a tenfold increase. After Pearl Harbor, it expanded even more. So what was the U.S. Army combat uniform kind of like? They didn't really have camouflage yet as we think of it today, but this is much better than uh, back, at the, if you think of the Civil War days and even Spanish-American War, some units still wore the blue blouse, you know, and the sky blue pants. But now we have a somewhat of a camouflage uniform. It's thick green cotton. It, it blends into, certainly blends in well in the jungle atmosphere that the Americans are often going to be fighting in. They had ankle boots and leggings and a steel helmet. Now, originally the Americans wore the old World War I Brody helmet. If you think about watching Sergeant York or, or one of the other World War I movies or some of the photos you've seen, you see that it's, it's got this wide brim and it doesn't cover the entire neck and the back of the head, but, but this one does. These are, the new helmet is an M1 helmet. By Guadalcanal, they did have the M1 helmet. And they wore a cartridge belt, which was held up with suspenders around their waist. Other gear included a musette bag, which is a, basically a satchel, a canteen, a first aid kit, a small shovel, axe, or pick, and half of a shelter tent. And they would carry personal items like a mess kit, a shaving kit, and mosquito repellent. Although I'll tell you, Guadalcanal, they didn't shave a whole lot. (laughs) By the end of the (laughs) campaign, a lot of them had beards. Of course, they had to get rid of those afterward. But anyway, the main weapons that the U.S. Army soldier would carry would be a 1903 Springfield bolt-action rifle. This is the same weapon that was the main weapon in World War I. Uh, they still liked them. They had a clip of five, uh, you know, five bullets, that, so you could fire five times before you had to reload. Some of them also had an M1 Garand rifle, which was semi-automatic. And soldiers would also carry grenades and knives. And I mentioned before, sometimes they had Tommy guns and sometimes they had Browning automatic rifles and other things. So so a wide variety of weapons. But again, most of them had the 1903 Springfield or the M1 Garand. What did they eat? The basic ration was the C ration, which stands for canned ration. It was a can that was open with a key. And there were also B units, B rations. They had hard biscuits, sugar cubes, chocolate or hard candy, and ground coffee. And then M units that had meat in them. A lot of times spam was was what they would eat. And they didn't just, yeah, delicious. But better, I mean, if you're, if you're it out started there, Hawaii's like, love affair with spam, so there's that. Yeah, it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. And they didn't just eat rations out of cans, of course. That's what they would eat when they were in the thick of a battle or a campaign. But, 
But when units were behind the front, when they were rotated out or in between campaigns, they did have hot chow. It was served in field kitchens behind the front. And sometimes they would be stationed on an island waiting to go to the next campaign and the food would be even better. In the Pacific, U.S. soldiers dealt with uh, many types of tropical diseases, but uh, we've already talked quite a bit about that. You had ringworm, malaria was the number one, and we did talk quite a bit about malaria in in our previous episode, so I won't go into any more detail about that. But uh, what about, let's talk about the food a little bit more, Scott. You know, that's one of the things that soldiers... The, one of the number one concerns they had all throughout the war, soldiers, sailors, everybody thought about food, food. Uh, and we still do today. Food is extremely important, especially since these are mainly young men who they could consume a lot of calories. Sometimes American service personnel would consume four or 5,000 calories a day. So that's boy, I mean, I would weigh 500 pounds if I did that, <laughs> but uh, at my age, but these guys, of course, were young and they're running around and they're toting these heavy weapons and they're sweating. And they're, as we mentioned, they're losing 20, 30, 40 pounds because of disease. James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved, Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. 
So tell me some more about food, Scott. All right. Well, this gets into the nitty gritty of logistics. And uh, for my military history nerds out there, everyone knows, I mean, the greatest generals, they thought about this. Napoleon has all sorts of quotes about how an army marches on its stomach. And World War II is watershed for so many things. Um, But one of them that from a logistician's standpoint is the dawn of processed food. So whole food shoppers, organic food eaters, mom bloggers, wellness experts, uh, the things that you hate most, processed food, you wish the whole world would be organic and fair trade and be on a farm. That is great, listeners. I mean, I endorse that wholeheartedly. Do that for your good health. But if you're trying to supply a logistics line tens of thousands of miles, um, farm fresh celery that will go bad in one or two days simply isn't going to cut it. And um, the um, types of processed foods that allow things to be in a can to last for days or weeks or months are something that I think George Washington or Napoleon, they could have only dreamed of. Um, We talked about this in all of our different series, James, of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, even getting into World War I, where a big problem is foraging. This happened in Valley Forge. George Washington did not want his troops to forage, but eventually he let them because they had no other choice. Now, James, if you're in enemy-occupied territory or there's enemy sympathizers nearby and your troops are running low on food and you say, okay, just go raid these people's farms, those people are going to love you after the battle's over and totally support you and not the enemy. Right, James? They just love Oh, yeah. That. <laughs> People just love having their, their food, their farm products that they've worked for months on just being taken away for no money. Right. So this is something that um, Washington was looking down in jealousy. Napoleon was looking, well, down or up, wherever you think he is in the eternal hereafter. <laughs> but, um, Robert, e., Robert E. Lee as well. <laughs> yeah, they're all very jealous of what happens that America can do here. Um, like you said, James, they eat the best. They have four to 5,000 calories per soldier. The food isn't great, and America, in its genius, takes on the processed food mantle, but then adds tons of sugars to get it flavor, because heavily processed foods don't have it. So hence the American diet and obesity and all that. That's neither here nor there. Um. So American soldiers are the beefiest. They have the most stamina. And also, they don't rely on foreign food. The only thing they really rely on is ingredients that couldn't be grown locally, and they'd pay it for resources. And a lot of Americans got into the cuisine. So if you've ever been in a big city and you've seen a tiki bar where you can drink a Mai Tai and they have the Polynesian music, a lot of that culture came from servicemen in the Pacific who they liked the Mai Tai drinks, the tiki drinks, the music there and all that. So they enjoyed the culture, but they weren't foraging and forcing locals at gunpoint to give up their resources. Um, So just to compare where the Americans are to the British, because I think this helps kind of give some perspective. The British had slightly less um, calories and food than their American counterparts. And they fed themselves with external food from places like Argentina and Chile they weren't quite as mechanized as the American levels because the food supply chains in the U.S. were basically as mechanized as their battleship or aircraft carrier supply lines. Um, But the British do piggyback off of U.S. supply lines. There's a lot of similarity, and they have a huge diet. Uh, Germans also had 4,000 calories a day. A lot of their food was uh, foraged. Uh, Their mechanization was only moderate because of limited supply supply lines. Uh, Soviets were less well-off. Um, But Soviet rations always included vodka. So during the battle at Stalingrad, rations are parachuted on the front lines of the city. 
food rations were tied under the airplane with little care, but alcohol was launched for the cabin with great care. So they had their priorities there. Yeah, that, keeping it's, that's got to have your priorities. <laughs> it keeps the morale up. Uh, now, so again, the food isn't great. And, you know, no army is above foraging. It does happen. So if a group of soldiers did come across a farm, some soldiers, I'm sure, took advantage of it and took some produce there. And if a unit stumbled on an enemy farm, then you could quickly turn animals into a roast stew or beef for soldiers. And if you were in a terrible pinch, pack animals like horses or mules, because not everything is mechanized in World War II, especially if you're far off into the jungles, uh, you could turn them into food. But um, the there are many, many, many problems that the Allies have in World War II. But food, I mean, compared to the other wars that we've seen, is not yet in the same way by a long shot. And like James said, with a uh, spam... Um, not tastes great, but in Hawaii, people still eat spam a lot. It's part of their cuisine, and that comes from World War II rations. So the effects of World War II are still echoing today in the 21st century in the form of spam. Yeah, and they did a good job of preparing those rations. I saw a YouTube video recently where a guy, and this was just a couple years ago, a guy actually found an unopened sea ration from World War II, and he opened oh. it up, and he ate it, and he said it was, wasn't bad. Not bad all at right. all. 60 years. So that shows you how preserved it is. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Or 80 years. Sorry. Yeah, I pushed an 80 now. All right. So uh, I'm going to talk. Well, let me let me sum up on, on the Army. By the end of the war, 10 million men had served in the U.S. Army. About 235,000 U.S. soldiers were killed. Again, that's just army a soldier by definition is army never call a marine a soldier <laughs> i made that mistake me. on an interview so oh I'm my dad you. my dad was one and i made that mistake one time that was all it took. <laughs> but so th this is both theaters i don't have i don't have the number of soldiers specifically killed just in the pacific theater but uh but if you in the entire war 235,000 soldiers were killed and another Almost 600,000 were wounded. I'm rounding these numbers off. Now, uh, as much as I love the Marines and I love my dad, who was a Marine, I'm going to deal with the Marines in one paragraph. So if you are a Marine, I apologize for not going on, you know, 10 more minutes on the Marines. But honestly, the Marines had similar uniforms, similar food, similar equipment to soldiers. But what was mainly what was quite different was their missions. In general, Marines were the first units to land on an island. They would establish a beachhead and a perimeter. Sometimes they would take full control of the island, but it just depended on how stiff the Japanese resistance was. The Army would then take over and the Marines would be evacuated. There were always exceptions to this rule, of course. For every rule, there's an exception. Sometimes Army soldiers would participate in the initial assault. But that's the general rule. And of course, Marines had a little bit of a different style of combat. They, they tended to move faster. They tended to be less concerned about casualties. I don't, I don't want to make them sound like they were unfeeling. They did, they, it's not like they didn't care about casualties, but they, weren't, they just weren't quite as cautious as the Army. And occasionally that's going to cause problems when they are fighting side by side with, with Army units. We'll see that at the Battle of Saipan much later. All right, so that is a brief overview of the life and experience of a U.S. Army soldier and a Marine. Do you want to add anything else, Scott, before I go on to pilots? No, let's do it. Let's 
kick off the Japanese pilots. All right. Off we go into the wild blue yonder. So let's talk about Japanese pilots. Most pilots that Americans faced were naval aviators. So we're going to focus on them. Of course, you had, just like in the American forces, you had Japanese army pilots and you had Navy pilots. But unlike in the U.S. Navy, many Japanese naval pilots were recruited from sailors already serving in the fleet. Most were enlisted men or petty officers. Commissioned officers were a small minority, and that's totally different from the U.S. approach. In the, in the U.S. Navy, as well as the Army Air Corps, later the Army Air Force, uh, most of the pilots were officers. In a lot of cases, they were lieutenants or captains. In, in the Navy, they would be lieutenant ensign or lieutenant or lieutenant junior grade. But it's different, and the, the Japanese had a different approach to that. But if you wanted to be a pilot in the Japanese Navy, it was extremely hard to get into the, the, the Japanese Naval Preparatory Flight Training Program, and that was called the Yokaren. Fewer than 1% of applicants passed the written exam. That, that's a tough exam, I'll tell you what. And many who did pass the exam were eventually weeded out of training. At the Yokaren, candidates underwent exhausting physical training. They were given sparse meals, and they took rigorous coursework. They also suffered constant brutal treatment at the hands of upperclassmen, instructors, and officers. Captains would hit lieutenants. Lieutenants would hit uh, petty officers. Petty officers would hit seamen and things like that. That's true throughout all the Japanese forces. But in pilot school, beatings for minor and major offenses were common. They ranged from a slap in the face to punchings to severe beatings, even with sticks or baseball bats. That's just awful, man. I, I can't imagine. Broken bones were not uncommon. And those who administered the beatings called them lessons. So Hell Week is basically the entire school. <laughs> yeah, it really is. There's You never escape from the hell part of it. Uh, I, in my research, I read a, stories of... Candidates who were, they were beaten so badly that they never really recovered. They never were the same. They, they couldn't walk as well, things like that. That's not a good way to, uh, to prepare your pilots to fly. If they can't walk anymore or if they can't walk without a limp, they may not be the best qualified. But anyway, the Japanese saw it differently. They saw it as discipline. They, they saw it as a way of making them tough. Those who survived the Yokaren were sent to uh, Kasumu, Kasumigara, sorry, for flight training. Discipline was less severe here than at the Yokaran, but the physical training was at least as tough. And then you had flight training, and that lasted for about another year. Candidates would log an average of 500 flight hours and then be given a series of tests. If they passed, they were assigned to a carrier or to an air base on land. The Japanese Air Naval Air Service was Perhaps too exclusive. It was designed to produce quality, not quantity. By 1943, most of the best and most experienced Japanese pilots had been killed, and there were not nearly enough new pilots to replace them, and the amount of training the replacements had grew increasingly less as the war went on. It got to where they barely had any training at all. According to author John Toland in the book The Rising Sun, one Japanese motion picture company built a lake and filled, filled it with six-foot models of U.S. warships. Atop a tower, a movie camera, this is a quote, atop a tower, a movie camera on a boom took pictures of the vessels from various angles, simulating different speeds of approach. 
These films were shown as substitute for flight training in order to save fuel. <laughs> what do you think of that, Scott? Well, I mean, I have to give them points for creativity. Um, I'm it's really like curious. You, you've seen the movie Midway. Now you're you're now <laughs> go fly a plane yourself. Ugh. Right. The, it's sort of the armchair quarterback. Of, oh, I could have made that pass. Um, I don't know. I mean, for all I know, um, maybe that actually was effective. I'd be curious the accounts of pilots where they said later on, you know, that really did give me a good spatial view of what it was I encountering. And it helped me to visualize it. And I developed the muscle reflexes. Or people said that was completely useless. Whoever directed that has never flown anything before, right. uh, except for a paper airplane. Um, mm -hmm. It maybe worked or it could be a terrible idea. You never, desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah. And uh, they didn't really have a choice. They just, by the end of the war, as we will talk about quite a bit later, there's just no fuel. They, they don't even, they can't put the fuel in the planes to even fly around in them. And, and by the way, the planes are almost gone by that point too. Unlike American pilots, Japanese pilots were not rotated out of theater. So they rarely got rest or a break from service. Also, Japanese pilots' survival rates were much less than those of the Americans since their planes were designed more for speed and maneuverability than to protect the pilots. They, just as a couple of examples, the Japanese Zero did not have a self-sealing fuel compartment, so it was very. If you if they took a hit near the fuel, it, it, the whole plane would go up in flames. They also the the cockpit was not was not armored. They didn't. They just didn't have a lot of armor in general. So that's what made them so fast and maneuverable. But of course, they paid a great price for that uh, when they actually got shot at. Right. I mean, there's another thing too that in the early part of the war, uh, Japanese pilots didn't even wear parachutes. Uh, there's a book by Saburu Sakai called Samurai, and he notes that since most of the flights are over enemy territory, wearing a parachute meant that you were willing to be a prisoner. So when ordered to take a parachute with them, the book notes that many pilots just sat on them as cushions. So I guess it makes it a little bit softer when you fly. But if the entire idea is that you're not going to surrender, then what's the point, I guess? Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh... Yeah, it's that's it's just kind of it's really sad in a way, but uh, it's just a, a very different culture, very different approach to warfare. James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so the... Let's talk about the Army Flyers. The Imperial Japanese Army Air Service had a similar level of professionalism and training techniques as the Japanese Naval Air Service. However, its primary focus was on supporting the Army in the field, particularly in China and Southeast Asia. The tactical battlefield focus of Japanese Army aviation was modeled on the German lines, with close air support and battlefield air superiority taking primary focus. Japanese naval aviation had responsibility for long-range bombing as well as strategic air defense, and it wasn't until B-29s appeared over Japan that the two air arms were forced to cooperate on home defense. So again, we've, we've already seen this theme of the lack of cooperation between the branches of the service and the Japanese uh, military, and they are forced, uh, eventually they're going to have to be forced to work together. Now, as the Americans advanced westward and the Japanese had to retreat towards their home islands, conditions for Japanese pilots grew increasingly worse. Ian Toll writes this. He says, as they were wrested back by the enemy, the Japanese were forced to retreat to the bases in which ground support facilities were inadequate and living conditions abysmal. Pilots and mechanics were quartered in tents, cooked over open fires and bathed in fuel drums. Latrines were built over vile open pit cesspools. Medical facilities were undermined and undermanned, I'm sorry, and undersupplied, and surgery was often performed without anesthesia. Shades of the Civil War right there. Well, even in the Civil War, they had at least some anesthesia. They had yeah, either, right? So even yeah. pre-Civil War. Yeah, it's this is just uh it just gets worse and worse for these poor pilots. By the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which is in October of 1944, the Japanese Navy became so desperate that they began, they began sanctioning kamikaze, which means divine wind attacks. Kamikazes were suicide attacks in which the pilots would attempt to crash their aircraft loaded with bombs, torpedoes, or other explosives into enemy ships. Now, less than 20% of kamikaze attacks were successful. However, kamikaze attacks were more accurate than conventional attacks, and they often caused more damage. And they certainly enacted a terrible psychological toll on the Allies. Some kamikazes were able to hit their targets even after their aircraft were crippled. And we're going to do a whole episode on kamikazes later on down the road. So, uh, so I'll leave that topic for now. Just wanted to kind of introduce it and kind of tease our listener it's going to be a while, so you have to be patient, but we will go into great detail about kamikazes and, and the specific actions that they took. So that's Japanese pilots. All right. Well, um, this uh, next topic, uh, I'd like to get your take on this, James. Uh, you'll talk about American pilots, both the U.S. Army, Air Force, and Navy. And I think that for people who don't 
know as much about World War II or specifically aviation history of World War II, they just assume, well, first of all, they don't realize that the Air Force doesn't exist yet. They think that anything that has wings is Air Force. Uh, Not even the case now, but not the case back then either. So could you describe those differences? Because I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that, oh, the Navy, um, even today, the the largest Air Force in the world is the U.S. Air Force. The second largest Air Force, I think, is the Naval Air Force. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's a that surprises a lot of people. Yeah. So American pilots in the Pacific theater were either Naval aviators, Marine pilots, or members of the U.S. Army Air Corps, or after 1942, it was called the U.S. Army Air Forces, the USAAF. No separate Air Force, as you mentioned. That's going to come after the war. But apart from naval and marine aviators possibly serving on aircraft carriers, the experiences of naval aviators and their land-based Army and Marine counterparts were similar. Army fighter pilots even did frequently fly off of escort carriers ferrying them to newly captured or built airfields on islands in the Pacific. So the rest of this section, I'm going to focus primarily on the experiences of naval aviators. That's just, a, we don't have time to go into an extensive account of all the different types of pilots. So let's, let's mainly focus on the Navy. Now, unlike the Japanese who folked, focused primarily on quality of pilots over quantity, the Americans focused on quantity. The Navy alone awarded pilots' wings to 3,100 3, men, roughly, in 1941, about 11,000 in 1942, about 21,000 in 1943, and another 21,000 in 1944. Despite these high numbers, training standards actually increased over this time rather than decreased. So the unlike the Japanese, who they decreased in quantity and quality, the American naval, naval aviators increased both in numbers and in quality. Because they, they had the luxury, they had so many... Fl- flyers they didn't have to have them all out there at one time they could they could spend plenty of time training the new ones that are coming up through the ranks in 1939 and 1940 navy recruiters fanned out across the nation's universities looking for volunteers who were in good health with 2020 vision were single and childless and between five foot five and six foot one the candidates were given vision tests physical examinations intelligence tests and psychiatric exams those who passed this initial examination were sent to so-called E-base or elimination base, where they were taught basic flying skills. Those who made it through E-base were sent to pre-flight school, most of which were held at universities. They were made seamen second class, and they underwent military discipline there. They studied, but they were not beaten, I should say. <laughs> at least not, that wasn't part of the program. At least not officially, you know. Yeah, there were plenty of bar fights, but uh, they, it wasn't like your officer slaps you across the face or hits you with a baseball bat. They studied math and science subjects related to flying, as well as semaphore, Morse code, and aircraft engines. After this, the next step was primary flight training, which happened mainly at Pensacola, Florida, or Corpus Christi, Texas, not too far from where I live. They flew in the Boeing Stearman N25, or N, I'm sorry, N2S which is an open cockpit biplane covered by bright yellow fabric and nicknamed the Yellow Peril. <laughs> and, and it was called that because many trainees were actually injured or killed in accidents. Yeah, no flight simulators, kids. Yeah, we're not, not going to watch a movie. Uh, but after, fly, 
primary flight training, aviators went to secondary flight training. And there they flew increasingly advanced aircraft. They also flew in simulators and trained in flying by instruments alone. Candidates who passed secondary flight training were awarded their wings and commissioned as ensigns. An ensign is the lowest officer rank in the Navy. It's the equivalent to a second lieutenant in the Army and the Marines and, and later the Air Force. They then had to fly 300 to 400 more hours in service-type planes. So now we're in the real, the real deal, actual planes that are going to be used in combat. And then they were finally sent to the front lines. Bomber pilots also practiced bombing. Now, once they were assigned to a combat unit, pilots' lives, like those of all servicemen, were characterized by long periods of boredom punctuated by brief periods of terror. Pilots were especially busy in 1943 to 1945 as both Naval and U.S. Army Air Force planes constantly bombed Japanese targets, first on the various Japanese-held islands and then on the Japanese home islands. You know, I should say also, I've been, I was reading a book called Retribution, Ret I can't talk tonight, Retribution by Max Hastings. And he talks about how the, the naval aviators were not always well-loved by regular seamen and, and regular naval officers. They had a tendency to kind of be a little wild and, and they didn't really feel like they needed to follow strict military discipline they were kind of, the pilots were kind of, you know, they were like the, the knights of their day. They were, or at least they saw themselves as kind of rock stars. They saw themselves as special. You know, we're the ones that are really putting our lives on the line and we're taking these, taking the bombs to the Japanese and all that. And so, so there yeah, was a that was of, even, that even go goes ahead. back to World War One. Um, but oh, yeah. a lot of people didn't like them, but at least in World War One, um, other people would shrug their shoulders and think, ah, he'll be dead in a week. So let him have his fun. <laughs> Yeah, they lasted a little, a little longer on average in World War II, uh, and, and their drinking was legendary. <laughs> I mean, these guys like drank like a fish when they weren't uh, in the air. Uh, some of them probably had a little before they went into the air, too, which is kind of scary. But anyway, it's just, it's just interesting that the difference between naval aviators and just regular uh, naval ship personnel. All right, uh, let's see. In addition, when they were in combat, they had to deal with anti-aircraft fire from the ground or from a ship. They also had to deal with Japanese fighters. But American pilots also had to deal with freezing cold temperatures because the cabins of the aircraft were not heated or pressurized until very late in the war. The B-29 bomber was the, one of the first uh, aircraft in which you did have a pressurized cabin. And of course, there were me mechanical problems and harsh weather. All kinds of things could go wrong. E everything could go wrong. I mean, this is still true today um, in, in, among pilots, but it was much more so then. Aircraft is still, still relatively new. It, 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 it was less than 40 years since the Wright brothers flew their plane at Kitty Hawk. And a lot of planes were lost due to mechanical failures or running out of gas. You know, just kind of a funny personal anecdote. This is not, this doesn't really have anything to do with World War II, but when I was 18 years old and I just graduated from high school, I went to see the movie Top Gun. And I know you've seen that one, Scott, right? Yes. It's, of course. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not the best on movies, but I, you know, I have the basics. Yeah. You've been, <laughs> Top Gun has to be the basics. 
uh, you know, after that movie, I was like, oh man, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign up to be like a lot of young men. <laughs> I mean, there were probably millions of young men who said, that's what I want to do. And, and I thought seriously about signing up, but then I thought, you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in an airplane, <laughs> you know, and it's beyond my control. You know, what if the mechanic made a mistake? What if somebody didn't put in some rivet somewhere? What if they, what if they didn't connect these two wires correctly or something? I don't want that to happen to me. So. Well, yeah, I mean, especially when you're up there that high. And like you said, it's not pressurized. I've seen replicas of uh, World War II bomber jackets. They're just, they're pure sheepskin because, I mean, do you like hanging out at 20,000 feet? I don't. Um, when it's 40 below zero or something like that, it's yeah. pretty nasty stuff. And especially to think of how some of these pilots had to like dive from 20,000 feet to mm, 500 feet <laughs> in, in a very short period of time. The dive bombers, that, that just seems you'd have to be practically insane to do that. But I'm glad some people did. I ended up not signing up to be a naval aviator, <laughs> of course. But so and then what happened when your plane was lost? Maybe you did run out of gas. Maybe you had a mechanical problem. Maybe you got shot down. When American planes were lost, a much greater percentage of American pilots were saved than was the case with the Japanese. And part of this is simply because, as we mentioned before, the Japanese planes weren't very well armored. They weren't well protected against explosions and fires. But American planes were. American planes, at least in the beginning of the war, were heavier they were more armored. They had self-sealing fuel tanks. The cockpit was armored. And so you just didn't get as many pilots killed. Plus, the Americans placed a greater emphasis on going and rescuing downed pilots than the Japanese did. And another thing that's interesting about the American pilots is that the best pilots were usually sent back to the U.S. to become instructors. In general, pilots tended to be rotated out of service and then back into service, and then there would be a time when you'd be eligible to not do any more missions. But um, but yeah, it's, it's good to have your best pilots. I mean, you certainly want them out there uh, fighting, but after they've been through a certain number of missions— it was believed that they kind of lost their edge and, and they just weren't as gung-ho. They were a lot more stressed, obviously. They were tired. So it made perfect sense to send them back to the U.S. or to other some of the islands that the U.S. would later occupy or maybe, uh, you know, somewhere, perhaps Pearl Harbor, perhaps Midway, uh, and make them instructors, you know, share their experience. And, and that, that just was a, one of the geniuses of the American training program. Yeah, and there's an interesting point you mentioned there uh, that they're tired, and that's true in the psychological sense, but something very interesting that comes out of education for pilots in this period is to deal with the problem of sleeplessness specifically. And uh, they realized very quickly, the U.S. military, that fighter pilots were having problems with sleeplessness, that if they had poor, poor sleep quality, then their hand-eye coordination would be poor, they couldn't make good judgments. Uh, these errors could result in them being shot down or shoot down guys on their own side with friendly fire. And just think about it. I mean, you don't exactly know when a mission will launch. Sometimes the order comes down very quickly and you have to get ready in uh, just a few minutes notice or maybe a couple of hours notice. So you could be sleeping. Your sleep quality would also all, almost always be very poor if you had this on your mind. You didn't know when a mission would launch. Uh, what happens is that I'm not sure if it's the Navy or the U.S. Army Air Corps did this, but the military brought in Naval Ensign Bud Winter to develop a method of teaching sleep. 
Uh, he was previously a college football coach who worked with a psychology professor to form techniques to help athletes relax uh, under pressure so that they weren't on edge for hours and hours of time and lose their mental focus. So after developing this method, uh, after six weeks, 96% of pilots could fall asleep within 120 seconds, even on the brink of a major battle about to break out. So I read this several months ago, and I've actually tried it a few times. So listeners, uh, if you're curious about what this is, I'll just go about very briefly. Uh, what you do is you get yourself into a comfortable position. And then what you do is you relax your face because you have dozens of muscles in your face. And physiologically, that determines how stressed you are if your face is scrunched up. But if you consciously relax it, it sends signals to your body that it's okay and it's safe to sleep. So the system recommended closing your eyes, relaxing your face, your forehead, your tongue, your jaw, let it go slack, uh, then drop your shoulders. Uh, again, it sends a signal to your body that you're not eminently under threat. You don't have to tense up to fight back a threat. Uh, make your arms feel heavy. Let your legs go limp. Then the next point they made was to clear your mind for 10 seconds. Uh, this is repeat some sort of mantra, something that would just make you brainless so that any kind of thoughts that would keep you mentally aware, keep you tensed up would go away. And uh, the person who designed this program, he mentioned different techniques, like imagining you're on the bottom of a canoe on a very serene lake. You're just looking up at blue sky and clouds. Uh, so whatever it is, I mean, this method was something that a lot of pilots used, and many of them were able to fall asleep very quickly. With that, their success rate skyrocketed because they didn't lack sleep. Uh, their hand-eye coordination was better. Losing it for several hours on the ocean, uh, they didn't have the same problem. So again, a mundane little thing, but much like canned food and supply lines and processed food, it's those little things that help you win a war. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, so no. you were so sorry you were trying it as i was talking you thought oh this does work oh, it, it really it, it works great i need to start trying that at night i'll tell you sorry listener for falling asleep during the podcast <laughs> all right well that's all we have on soldiers and on pilots in our next episode we're going to take you on to the ocean and we will share with you the experiences of the common sailor both on the side of the japanese and on the American side. See you then. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, which is called American History Fanatics where we discuss the episodes of this podcast as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. Fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes, and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout-out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C. and Bob McCullough, Captains Jenny Kateri, Jeff Henley, Grant Holstrom, 
Jose Martinez, and Melissa Mueller, and Lieutenants Matthew Christensen, Scott Hendricks, and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.